0: Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel.
1: Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for December 2010, Part 1 of 2. This month's issue features the Pediatrics Special Issue. Part 2 of this Audio Abstracts podcast covers the articles in the special issue. This month's research reports focus on Physical Therapy and Selective Nerve Root Block for Lumbar Pain Cross-cultural Disparities in Functional Status Determinants of Social Participation for Youths with Cerebral Palsy Professional Learning and Development of Novice Physical Therapists Muscle Strength and Functional Performance in People with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, and Balance Assessment in Children. This month's case report focuses on Physical Therapist Management of Chronic Prostatitis, Chronic Pelvic Pain Syndrome. This month's perspective articles focus on Regenerative Medicine and Physical Therapeutics, and Primary Care Physical Therapy in People with Fibromyalgia. The December issue also features an article in The Leap, Linking Evidence and Practice series. The article is titled, Cochrane Review, Improving Physical Function and Performance with Progressive Resistance Strength Training in Older Adults by Dr. Kathleen Klein Mangione, Dr. Amy Miller, and Irene Naughton. First this month, a pilot study examining the effectiveness of physical therapy as an adjunct to selective nerve root block in the treatment of lumbar radicular pain from disc herniation, a randomized controlled trial by Anne Thackeray, Dr. Julie Fritz, Dr. Gerard Brennan, Dr. Faisal Zaman, and Dr. Stuart Willick. This abstract
0: is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Therapeutic selective nerve root blocks are a common intervention for patients with sciatica. Patients are often referred to physical therapy after selective nerve root blocks, although the effectiveness of this intervention sequence has not been investigated. The study was a preliminary investigation of the effectiveness of selective nerve root blocks with or without subsequent physical therapy in people with low back pain and sciatica. This investigation was a pilot, randomized controlled clinical trial that took place in spine specialty and physical therapy clinics. 44 people with low back pain, with clinical and imaging findings consistent with lumbar disc herniation, and who were scheduled to receive selective nerve root blocks, participated in the study. 64% of the participants were men. Participants had a mean age of 38 and a half years. The participants were randomly assigned to one of two groups. One group received four weeks of physical therapy after the injections. The other group did not receive physical therapy after the injections. All participants received at least one selective nerve root block. Twenty-eight participants received multiple injections. Participants in the group that received physical therapy attended an average of six physical therapy sessions over an average of 24 days. Significant reductions in pain and disability occurred over time in both groups, with no differences between groups at either the eight-week or six-month follow-up for any outcome. Nine participants underwent surgery during the follow-up period five in the group that did not receive physical therapy, and four in the group that did receive physical therapy. The limitations of this study were a relatively short-term follow-up period and a small sample size. A physical therapy intervention after selective nerve root blocks did not result in additional reductions in pain and disability or perceived improvements in participants with low back pain and sciatica. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead
1: author Ann Thackeray is Physical Therapist and Study Coordinator in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. Next, Cross-Cultural Differences in Knee Functional Status Outcomes in a Polyglot Society Represented True Disparities Not Biased by Differential Item Functioning By Daniel Deutsche, Dr. Dennis Hart, Dr. Paul Crane, and Dr. Ruth
0: Dickstein Comparative effectiveness research across cultures requires unbiased measures that accurately detect clinical differences between patient groups. The purpose of this study was to assess the presence and impact of differential item functioning in knee functional status items administered using computerized adaptive testing as a possible cause for observed differences in outcomes between two cultural patient groups in a polyglot society. This study was a secondary analysis of prospectively collected data. The researchers evaluated data from over 9,100 patients with knee impairments from outpatient physical therapy clinics in Israel. Items were analyzed for differential item functioning related to sex, age, symptom acuity, surgical history, exercise history, and language used to complete the functional survey Hebrew versus Russian. Several items exhibited differential item functioning, however, unadjusted functional status estimates and functional status estimates that accounted for differential item functioning were essentially equal. No individual patient had a difference between unadjusted and adjusted functional status estimates as large as the median standard error of the unadjusted estimates. Differences between groups, defined by any of the covariates considered, were essentially unchanged when using adjusted instead of unadjusted functional status estimates. The greatest group-level impact was less than 0.3% of one standard deviation of the unadjusted functional status estimates. This study had the following limitation. Complete data where patients answered all items in the scale would have been preferred for differential item functioning analysis, but only computerized adaptive testing data were available. Differences in functional status outcomes between groups of patients with knee impairments who answered the knee computerized adaptive testing in Hebrew or Russian in Israel most likely reflected true differences that may reflect societal disparities in this health outcome.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary.
0: Lead author Daniel Deutsche
1: is Director of Research and Development in the Physical Therapy Service at Maccabee Healthcare Services in Tel Aviv, Israel. Next, Determinants of Social Participation with Friends and Others Who Are Not Family Members for Youths with Cerebral Palsy by Dr. Lin-Ju Kang, Dr. Robert Polizano, Dr. Margot Orlin, Dr. Lisa Shirello, Dr. Gillian King, and Dr. Marsha Polanski.
0: Social participation provides youths with opportunities to develop their self-concept, friendships, and meaning in life. Youths with cerebral palsy have been reported to participate more in home-based leisure activities and to have fewer social experiences with friends and others than youths without disabilities. The objective of this cross-sectional analysis was to identify youth family, and service determinants of the participation of youths with cerebral palsy in leisure activities with friends and others who are not family members. The participants were 209 youths who were 13 to 21 years old, had cerebral palsy, and were classified in gross motor function classification system levels 1 to 5, as well as their parents. The participants were recruited from seven children's hospitals in six different states. A sequential multiple regression analysis was used to determine the youth, family, and service variables that predicted participation with friends and with others who were not family members. 45.8% of the variance in the number of activities engaged in with friends was explained by sports and physical function, communication or speech problems, educational programs and the extent to which the desired community recreational activities were obtained. A higher level of parental education explained 6.3% of the variance in the number of activities engaged in with others who were not family members. A limitation of this study was that the youth's activity preferences and intensity of participation were not examined. Youth and service characteristics were determinants of participation with friends, but not others who were not family members. The findings have implications for the role of physical therapists in promoting sports and physical and communication abilities and in enhancing community opportunities to optimize the social participation of youths with cerebral palsy. This article
1: has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Lin-Ju Kang was a doctoral candidate in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences in the College of Nursing and Health Professions at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when this study was completed. The First Year of Practice, An Investigation of the Professional Learning and Development of Promising Novice Physical Therapists. By Dr. Lisa Black, Dr. Gail Jensen, Dr. Elizabeth Mostrom, Dr. Jan Perkins, Dr. Pamela Ritzline, Dr. Lorna Hayward, and Dr. Betsy Blackmer.
0: The goal in studying expertise is not merely to describe ways in which experts excel, but also to understand how experts develop in order to better facilitate the development of novices. The study of novice progression helps the physical therapy profession to understand what successful versus unsuccessful learning looks like. This understanding is critical as autonomous practice places increased demands for advanced clinical judgments and the ability to assume professional responsibilities. The purpose of this study was to explore the experiences, learning, and development of promising novice therapists throughout their first year of practice in the United States. A longitudinal, multiple-site, qualitative case study method was used for within-case and across-case analysis. A purposive sample of eleven promising new graduates from four physical therapist education programs participated. Investigators followed the graduates throughout their first year of practice. Data sources included, one, semi-structured interviews conducted at baseline and every three months thereafter for one year. two reflective journals completed at regular intervals, and three, review of academic and clinical education records and resumes. Four themes emerged. One, the clinical environment influenced the novice physical therapist's performance. Two, participants learned through experience and social interaction, and learning was primarily directed toward the self. Three, Growing confidence was directly related to developing communication skills. And four, therapists were engaged in professional identity formation and role transitions. The findings suggest that there are common experiences and themes that emerge as novice physical therapists develop. Although research has been conducted on expertise in physical therapy, few longitudinal investigations have explored the development of therapists across transitions from graduate to novice to expert practitioner. This study explored and described the learning and development of graduates during their first year of practice. Lead author Dr. Lisa Black
1: is assistant professor and director of clinical education in the Department of Physical Therapy at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Next, associations of the stair-climb power test with muscle strength and functional performance in people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease a Cross-Sectional Study by Dr. Mark Roach, Dr. Janice Eng, Dr. Donna McIntyre, Dr. Jeremy Rode, and
0: Dr. W. Darlene Reed. The stair-climb power test is a functional test associated with leg muscle power in older people. The purposes of this cross-sectional investigation were, one, to compare the results of the stair-climb power test in people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, and people who were healthy, and, two, to explore associations of the stair-climb power test with muscle strength and functional performance. Forty-two people participated in the study, twenty-one people with COPD who had a predicted mean percentage of forced expiratory volume in one second of 47.2, and twenty-one people who were healthy and matched for age, sex, and body mass. All participants were tested with the stair-climb power test. Knee extensor and flexor muscle torque was assessed with an isokinetic dynamometer. Functional performance was assessed with the timed up-and-go test and the 6-minute walk test. People with COPD showed lower values on the stair-climb power test and on all torque measures except for eccentric knee flexor muscle torque. In people with COPD, performance on the timed up-and-go test and the 6-minute walk test was lower by 23% and 28% respectively. In people with COPD, the stair-climb power test was moderately associated with knee extensor muscle isometric and eccentric torque and strongly associated with the 6-minute walk test. In people who were healthy, the association of the stair-climb power test with knee extensor muscle torque tended to be stronger. However, no significant relationship between the stair-climb power test and measures of functional performance was found. The observational design of the study and the use of a relatively small convenience sample limit the generalizability of the findings. The stair-climb power test is a simple and safe test associated with measures of functional performance in people with COPD. People with COPD show deficits on the stair-climb power test. However, the stair-climb power test is only moderately associated with muscle torque and thus cannot be used as a simple surrogate for muscle strength in people with COPD. Lead author Dr. Mark Krogh
1: is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Copenhagen in Copenhagen, Denmark. He was a doctoral student in rehabilitation sciences at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada at the time of the study. Next Construct validity of the assessment of balance in children who are developing typically and in children with hearing impairments. By Alexandra Kegel, Dr. Inga DeHoga, Wim Persman, Johan Rickart, Tina Battens, Dr. Dirk Cambier, and Dr. Hilda von Vevelde.
0: Children with hearing impairments have a higher risk for deficits in balance and gross motor skills compared with children who are developing typically. As balance is a fundamental ability for the motor development of children, a valid and reliable assessment to identify weaknesses in balance is crucial. The purpose of this study was to investigate the construct validity of posturography and clinical balance tests in children with hearing impairments and in children who are developing typically. The study involved 53 children with typical development and 23 children with hearing impairments who were between 6 and 12 years of age and without neuromotor or orthopedic disorders. All participants completed three posturography tests, modified clinical test of sensory interaction of balance, unilateral stance, and tandem stance, and four clinical balance tests, one-leg stance with eyes open, one-leg stance with eyes closed, balance beam walking, and one-leg hopping. Three of the four conditions of the modified clinical test of sensory interaction of balance as well as unilateral stance and two clinical balance tests were able to distinguish significantly between the two groups. Children with hearing impairments showed more difficulties in balance tasks compared with children who were developing typically when one or two types of sensory information were eliminated or disturbed. The study showed only low to moderate correlations among the different methods of evaluating balance. Clinical balance tests and posturography offer different but complementary information. An assessment protocol for balance consisting of posturography and clinical balance tasks is proposed. Static and dynamic balance abilities could not be differentiated and seem not to be a valid dichotomy. Lead author, Alexandre de Kegel, is a doctoral student
1: in the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences and Physiotherapy at Ghent University and at University College artevelde Hogeschool, both in Ghent, Belgium. This month's case report is Physical Therapist Management of Chronic Prostatitis, Chronic Pelvic Pain Syndrome by Dr. Linda von Alstein, Dr. Kendra Harrington and Dr. Esther Haskvitz.
0: Chronic Prostatitis, Chronic Pelvic Pain Syndrome negatively affects quality of life and sexual function in men of all ages. Typical treatment with antibiotic and antimicrobial drugs often is not successful. The purpose of this case report is to describe a multimodal physical therapy intervention that included manual therapy techniques applied to the pelvic floor in two patients who were unsuccessfully treated with the biomedical model of prescription drug therapies. Two men aged 45 years and 53 years and diagnosed with chronic prostatitis were referred for physical therapy following unsuccessful pharmacological treatment. The patients were treated with manual therapy techniques applied to the pelvic floor and instructed in progressive muscle relaxation, flexibility exercises, and aerobic exercises. Changes in the patient's National Institutes of Health Chronic Prostatitis Symptom Index revealed differences between pre-intervention and post-intervention scores, reflecting decreased pain and improved quality of life. One patient improved from a score of 25 out of a total possible score of 43 before treatment to a score of zero after treatment. The other patient improved from a score of 29 out of 43 to a score of 21. Manual therapy techniques applied to the pelvic floor and performed by a physical therapist specially trained in these techniques along with progressive muscle relaxation, flexibility exercises, and aerobic exercises appeared to be beneficial to both patients in reducing pain and improving sexual function. Lead author Dr. Linda Van Alstein is physical therapist
1: at Physical Therapy Associates of Schenectady in Latham, New York. Our first perspective article is The Emerging Relationship Between Regenerative Medicine and Physical Therapeutics by Dr. Fabrizia Ambrosio, Dr. Stephen Wolfe, Dr. Anthony Delito, Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald, Dr. Stephen Badalak, Dr. Michael Boninger, and Dr. Alan Russell.
0: Dramatic changes in the healthcare landscape over the next few decades undoubtedly will affect rehabilitation specialists' practice. In the multidisciplinary field of regenerative medicine, cell, tissue, or organ substitutes are used to enhance the healing potential of the body. Given that the restoration of normal functioning of injured or diseased tissues is expected to be the ultimate goal of these therapies, the future of regenerative medicine is undeniably tightly intertwined with that of rehabilitation. Rehabilitation specialists not only must be aware of cutting-edge medical advances as they relate to regenerative medicine, but also must work closely with basic scientists to guide the development of clinically relevant protocols. The purposes of this article are 1. To provide a current perspective on biological approaches to the management of musculoskeletal disorders, and 2. To highlight the needed integration of physical therapeutics with regenerative medicine.
1: Lead author Dr. Fabrizia Ambrosio is director of the Cellular Rehabilitation Laboratory and is assistant professor in the departments of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Physical Therapy, and Orthopedic Surgery and in the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, all at the University of Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Finally, in Part 1, our last perspective article is Primary Care Physical Therapy in People with Fibromyalgia, Opportunities and Boundaries Within a Monodisciplinary Setting. By Dr. Joe Nies, Dr. Kaisa Manerkorpi, Philippe Deskemacher, and Dr.
0: Budavin von Houdenhova. Despite the fact that people with fibromyalgia syndrome frequently are seen by primary care physical therapists, guidelines for the management of fibromyalgia syndrome are based primarily on outcomes from multidisciplinary and tertiary care treatment studies. Few data addressing the treatment of patients with fibromyalgia syndrome in primary care currently are available. The evidence-based guidelines on the management of fibromyalgia syndrome are based in part on evidence from studies examining physical therapy treatment components alone, such as aerobic exercise and education. Thus, the recommendations can be applied to primary care physical therapy. Primary care physical therapy for patients with fibromyalgia syndrome should include education, aerobic exercise, and strengthening exercise. For other treatment components, such as passive treatments, activity management, and relaxation, Less evidence currently is available to advocate their use in primary care physical therapy. Superior results are to be expected when various treatment components are combined.
1: Lead author Dr. Joe Nice is assistant professor at Vria Universität, Brussels, in Brussels, Belgium, in the Division of Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy, Department of Healthcare Sciences, at Artesis University College in Antwerp, Belgium, and in the Department of Physical Medicine and Physiotherapy at the University Hospital Brussels in Brussels, Belgium. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.